Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Anyone who knows me knows my favorite holiday is Halloween. Costumes and candy and hauntingly good times, especially right here in one of America's most haunted places. On this year's special episode, we begin with New Orleans chef Greg Piccolo, who we spoke with for our very first Halloween show back in 2010 and then again in 2019. It seems like no matter where Greg goes, paranormal activity keeps following him. Or is it just that New Orleans is really that haunted? Then, we explore the story of one mid-city restaurant whose spirits hijinks have remained consistent through three different owners. Finally, documentarian Barbara Sillery takes us to some of her favorite French Quarter haunts before we visit the tombs of dearly departed culinary legends with author and historian Sally Asher. We've got 10 years of ghosts and ghouls on this very special Halloween edition of Louisiana Eats. No matter where he goes, paranormal activity is never far behind. This is the story of Louisiana native Greg Piccolo, who was the culinary wizard behind the bistro at Maison de Ville and Redemption. During his tenure at these restaurants lost to time, Greg was exposed to his share of ghostly mayhem. A lot of people think it's a lot of hooey. But in essence, I think people don't want to believe because it's more comfortable not to believe. Even before his career as chef began, Greg says he was in tune with the supernatural. I started having these experiences when I was very young. I'm going to say about 17. My brother and I and a couple of roommates, if they would stay, shared a house on Iberville and Jeff Davis. And this house had a plethora of activity. I'm talking from the first day I walked in. I was alone there the first night. We had no electricity yet, and I was sitting in the little kitchen. There was a long ray shotgun, and I had the back of the house. And I'm sitting there, just, just sitting there. I didn't know I had any inclination or anything was going to happen. There was like some soda bottles, you know, 7-Up, uh, Coca-Cola. They were empty just sitting on the ledge. And out of nowhere, all of a sudden, one, just one bottle started spinning just kept spinning and I kept going mm, mm, this is some good stuff but from that moment on things just kept happening and happening and happening
I was in college at the time, and often one of the spirits there would do the bedrock. Now, I was young and stupid, and I would just go, stop. I've got tests tomorrow. I've got to go to sleep. Stop it. Stop it. And then over in the corner, I, was, I had an old dressmaker's dummy, and that would start rotating and going, ba-doom, 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 ba-doom. and I go, stop, stop, stop. Well, I kept telling myself, I'm making this up. I'm imagining this. This is not happening. This is just stress or, you know, overwork, you know, school is. Subsequently, and this happened many years after we had left the house, my brother and I were at a party, and I overheard him having a conversation with somebody about the house because we never talked about it. And how one night he was using my room because I was out, and he went to bed on my bed, and he said he was never so scared in his life. The bed just started picking up and rocking. So finally, after all those years of going through this, I had validation that this was really true. And I've talked to Christopher about it and asked, you know, why would they come into my presence? Did, you know, what, why do they want to see me? And he said, well, they're lonely and they're looking for a way to connect with this current plane. And some people are, as he said, they're channelers. They're, they're able to deal with the spirits without fear. And that was the beginning. That's when I first finally said, well, maybe, you know. Maybe they're following you around. Well, maybe they're here right now. Maybe they are. Perhaps it's no surprise that when Greg was the chef at the Bistro at the Maison de Ville in the Quarter, the hauntings continued. In fact, for our show's very first Halloween episode in 2010, Greg gave us a ghost tour, complete with fighting Frenchmen and country music-loving Confederates. You do, of course, remember, ladies and gentlemen, it's out of the corner of your eye. I have a great story of a, a guy, this man was six foot five, about 250 pounds, the, the kind of guy that would scare somebody if you looked at him, was so petrified by the, the ghost, and we'll call her a ghost, who would come through the line and touch his back, and he would get cold shivers and, and would run out of the room and ultimately had to leave because he just couldn't take her annoying him anymore. The hotel and the bistro are separated by an alley, and there's a door that leads from the hotel into the alley. We would often see this this image of a woman in like a white dressing gown, probably 1800s, uh, would cross the patio and go right through the wall into the bistro. Out there are cabinets where we keep wine and what have you. After the hurricane, all that was ripped down to be renovated, and that's for the first time I saw the original door to this building we're sitting in. That's where she was going through. She's continuing to go from her house to the house next door. I've had situations of three or four people coming in and going, Chef, I swear I just saw her. I understand that the cottages that are adjacent to your beautiful little patio in the back are haunted too. Oh yeah, Suite 1 is extremely haunted. When guests were staying at the hotel, usually around midnight, they would have to check out because there are two French fellows in there who obviously are fighting in French. They knock furniture over, they knock the books off of the mantel, and they get so loud that the clients who are staying upstairs cannot sleep. And of course they come downstairs and no one's there. Oh. And that makes them 
even less likely to fall asleep. So they tend to check out and get a different room. Jessica, used to work at the front desk, often saw a caped gentleman who would walk from the main lobby back to suite one. So what makes it really exciting is that one of the French guys, and we're not really sure, you know, the lady's crossing the alley. This guy's walking past here. I think there was a lot of... Uh, romance? Let's say ro- <laughs> ghost mans. It was a ghost mans. And so we, she would see this guy walking through. And I have actually, and I'm not making it up, at certain points of the evening, if you look to the back from the patio, you'll see this kind of apparition standing there, very much dressed in a long cape, but it's very shadowy. So it's, we have them here. Even though the radio is a relatively modern convenience, I understand the radio features into one of your ghost tales, too. Yeah, over in Cottage One, one of the housekeepers, uh, once again, somebody who left because they couldn't stand all the fun and games, every time she would go dress the room for the night, which is you do the turndown service, put the chocolates on the pillow, all the radios are adjusted to... WWNO, believe it or not, we'd play classical music on the the radio. Well, as soon as she would turn to leave the room, lock up, go do her other rooms, the radio switched to country music. Oh, he liked country music. He liked country. And and according to her, he was dressed in a shabby gray outfit, and we're assuming probably Civil War era. In 2011, Greg was at the helm of Redemption, a repurposed century-old church located at 3835 Iberville Street. Now, this is where my theory about ghosts following him around breaks down, and I find myself asking a different question. Are ghosts haunting Greg, or are hauntings just a workplace hazard in a city like New Orleans? You see, Greg was only one of three different sets of chefs and owners who held the keys to 3835 Iberville over the years. Before Redemption opened in 2011, it enjoyed a long run as Christian's Restaurant, owned by Chris Ansel and Hank Bergeron. In 2016, it became Vessel Nola. It doesn't seem to matter who owned the lease or who worked there. That place is haunted. There's so much chaos. There's a lot of people. There's people in the ground. And I'm seeing, you know, people being killed. Recently, the Travel Channel show The Dead Files spent a whole episode in the building and interviewed current owners Alec Wilder and Eddie Dwyer. They hosted a viewing at Vessel where former owners and workers came together. There, they discovered they shared many hauntingly similar experiences in that building. We followed the story right to the source. Celeste Bergeron-McCann, who worked at Christian's during her dad's time there, and our old friend, Chef Greg Piccolo. Hi, I'm Celeste Bergeron-McCann. My father owned Christian's Restaurant in the Mid-City area on Iberville, And I'm here to talk today about its hauntings. Celeste, 
Tell us about how Christians came to be. It was still a church when your father transformed it into a restaurant, correct? Yes. He and his business partner um, purchased the building. They moved there in 1977. It did require some renovation. Um, For instance, the floor was pitched toward the altar, and they leveled it so that it would be more suitable for dining. Um, There was a cry room in the back, which was original to the church. Also, a school room, which was the kitchen and upstairs also, They didn't do tremendous amount of changes, but they did really freshen it up and tried to keep things as original as possible. Now, you worked there, and there was definite signs of some sort of paranormal activity. Tell me about when that first started and who it involved there. It didn't start right away for me. It was after a while that I was there that I started noticing things. We had some cooks that would come in really early, and I was there earlier as well. They would say, oh my gosh, I don't even want to go in the dining room, because it's when it was very, very quiet or dark that they would feel things or experience things. A lot of times early in the morning, there would be a man walking up and down the length of the dining room, which was very long, with like a a priest cassock on, black with buttons, never really saw his face, but you could when you would look closer to see him, he was gone. Up the stairway off the kitchen, there was a small office, a wine room, and a pantry. Well, if I was standing at the copy machine, often I felt someone was standing right behind me. You would even turn around to see who was there, and there was no one there. And sometimes I could hear footsteps coming up the stairway because it's directly off that door. And I'd say, who's there? And it was absolutely no one. In the wine room, you always felt like someone was watching you, like it it was just a very eerie, oppressive feeling. When you went in there, you did what you had to do and you got out because you didn't want to linger in that room. (laughs) Coming up the steps also, there's always a pocket of cold air that you walk through. It's not the AC, it's not anything. The AC could be completely off, but it's always there. Many people have slipped on the steps, fallen on the steps. Many have been pushed or tripped on the steps, but there's really no rhyme or reason. The steps are even covered with non-slip plastic to make it quiet and safer. And people still fall and you still hear the footsteps. It just goes above all of that. Greg, what was once Christian's, is now Vessel, but when you were there, the restaurant was called Redemption. Tell me about what was going on at Redemption. Well, you know, I I guess it was just typical type of, uh, I'd say poltergeist type activity. I heard it, I felt it, it didn't bother me so much because I'd had really bad experiences to where this was rather benign. And uh, it it was validated on several occasions, one by a, a waiter who was working for me then, who came running in white as a ghost and talked about a little boy in the, the parking lot and who disappeared. And he didn't seem to be the kind of guy to make things up. And I had seen him in the parking lot a couple of times. And once again went, well, you know, there's spirits all over town. I mean, if you think about the proximity of what it was a church at one point 
And uh, so it wouldn't be unusual, but it was a little boy, a little black-haired boy. And I, I asked him, what are you doing here? Where are your parents? Are you okay? And he just stood there looking at me, and then he just turned and walked toward the street, and he was gone. He was just gone. They used to play a lot of tricks on the, my partner at that time, Maria DeLon, who was the owner, and we were partners in the operation. And she would be upstairs in the offices. You know, it's two stories. And all of a sudden, we'd hear tremendous amounts of noise in the kitchen, pots being thrown and silverware everywhere and glass breaking. And she would call down saying, Chef, Chef, are you down there? She freaked out. And I wasn't there. The cooks would say it too. They could hear the pots. We had them hanging in the kitchen. And they would just make this clanking noise. But no one was in there. No one was using them. Everything was off. It was the end of the night most of the time or early in the morning before anyone was even there. Um, that any crowd or group of employees even, and the, the pots would move and make noise. The noises that it made were not real. There weren't pots being thrown. There wasn't anything left on the floor. If you could walk, I could walk in the room because often, you know, Maria would call me She'd be very upset, and she said, well, you weren't here, and blah, 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 and I'd go back and check, and everything was fine. You know, they like to do fun things like that. They've got nothing else to do, at least my experience. Sometimes you just had to convince yourself this is fine. It's just eerie. Now, they were never malicious, I can say. You know, we were comfortable with it. It was just the strange feelings. But the most common thing that all of us have mentioned, everyone really saw the priest the most. Now, to once again show there's some validity here, I was at a Thanksgiving dinner with my friends, the Goodies. Their daughter-in-law's aunt is uh, a spiritualist. And we were talking about the restaurant and whatnot and and just kind of let it go. It went away, and a a week or so later, I got a, a call from her, and her name's Queenie. And she said, I went over there, You're clean. I got it cleaned out for you. And so I said, well, what was it? What is the entity? She said, well, it's actually a priest. But he was disguising himself as a little boy because it would have been more accessible to, I guess, people. And so it turns out it was a priest that's over there. Now, if he's still there, I don't know. Uh, But, yeah, he was pretty active. He made a lot of noise. Now, I don't know if that that was the spirit that was making the noise, because she said there was a few entities there. But she cleanses buildings. That's one of the things she does. So there's been a lot of attention paid to Vessel, the restaurant that's occupying the space now. I understand you recently went to Vessel when they screened the dead files. Correct. Actually, it was a great experience, and I got to talk to the new owners and everything, and actually even got a tour of the place. But in speaking with them, um, they told us how there is a baptismal font that's underneath the waiter station from the original church in 1914. I know my dad told me that they didn't touch it at all. They left everything exactly how it was and just leveled the floor because they weren't really using it, so they left it. Um, The new owners did tell me that they touched it and they fooled with it. And also that they, up in the wine room and everything, it's not the same. They took down a wall. They made quite a few changes. And 
often you hear that when you take down walls and you do extreme renovation in old buildings, it can awaken something that you may not really want to awaken. <laughs> and I, I kind of feel like maybe that's what's happening because they're not seeing the priest, but we really didn't see some of the things or experience some of the things that they're experiencing now. We went upstairs and as I was walking down, down the steps, I absolutely felt like someone gave me a nudge and they were in front of me. I mean, there was no one around me. We, I was clear and I slipped on the steps and it was definitely a weird occurrence. It was like there was no reason for that to happen. And I didn't hurt myself. I just stumbled down a couple steps, but it was, he even said, Alex said, oh my gosh, I can't believe you fell. It's them telling you hello. <laughs> I was having problems for a while where they kept getting in my head. I was trying to go to sleep and I was, and I figured I'm just stressed, you know, the life of a chef, it's total stress and fatigue. Mm -hmm. And there's a gentleman I used to do, uh, the ghost, he has a thing called Ghost University. He's very renowned, Christopher Moon. And uh, he said, no, no, they're trying to communicate when you're most vulnerable, okay? So he taught me how to close it down and like, don't answer the phone. It's basically don't answer their call. Because if you take their call, they're very needy and they're gonna wanna come hang around. That was Celeste Bergeron McCann of the former Christian's Restaurant and Chef Greg Piccolo of the former Redemption. Now, Vessel Nola. Coming up next, we revisit our 2015 ghost tour of New Orleans French Quarter one of the most haunted places in America. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from the Napoleon House, now offering dine-in as well as takeout Tuesday through Saturday, including toasty warm mufaladas, gumbo, frozen Pimm's cups, and, by the way, the Napoleon House is haunted too. They may be reached online at napoleonhouse.com and at 504-524-9752. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. French Quarter has been home to more than its fair share of spooky stories filled with tragic and unsavory characters. 
What you may not know is that these long-perished villains and heroes continue to materialize regularly at their old haunts, terrifying and delighting denizens and tourists alike. In her book, The Haunting of Louisiana, Barbara Sillery tells the stories behind many of these tethered spirits. On an overcast October morning back in 2015, we joined Barbara for a tour of some of the quarter's most haunted restaurants and bars. Our first stop was one of the city's oldest structures, Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop, a candle-lit bar that's been slinging drinks since the 18th century. Barbara began by bringing one of New Orleans' most famous spirits to life, the pirate and privateer Jean Lafitte. Supposedly, although there is no documented proof, this was used as a sort of ploy for the pirate Jean Lafitte. He would rob ships out in the Gulf, and then his Baratarians, which were his fellow pirates, they had a storehouse down in the Gulf by Barataria, and then they would bring the goods upriver here to the blacksmith shop, and wealthy Creoles would come here and be able to buy these stolen goods from him. So now after his death, they say that the pirate has never really quite left. And people will say they've seen him out here in the courtyard walking around. They've seen him in the bar, just sort of hanging around the bar, watching what's going on. And occasionally a patron who's sitting at the bar will instruct the bartender to buy that gentleman down there in the corner a drink. He supposedly looks like a sketch that was done early on. He's a dark, swarthy figure, and he wears this typical what we all think of as a pirate hat, and he has a big sword hanging off of his hip. Well, I would think that would cause a pretty big commotion down here in the bar. I I don't think that would go unnoticed. Well, as I say in my book, I think there are more spirits here packaged in a bottle than wandering loose. However, people still like to believe that they see the pirate Jean Lafitte here. Next, we headed down Bourbon Street and rounded the corner at Bienville to arrive at a restaurant that's been a symbol of New Orleans fine dining for over a century. Arno's. Barbara, I am so thrilled that we got to tuck into the dining room here at Arno's. It really is breathtakingly beautiful, isn't it? Oh, I think this dining room is spectacular. And Count Arno, the original owner of Arno's restaurant, continues to think it's spectacular. And he continues as his ghost to set the standard here. Now, the Count is long deceased and so interesting because he wasn't really a count, was he? No, it was sort of a self-appointed title. I think it came with his whole idea that he wanted to make New Orleans into the Paris of the United States. So where can we find the count here? The count is usually right here in the main dining room and checks on the dishes to make sure that everything is presented correctly and that all the food is prepared well. He usually doesn't appear to the diners, but he does appear to the waitstaff. 
busboys occasionally are so startled when they look up and they see him scowling at them that they drop their dishes and the diners might look up but they're not really sure what has startled the poor busboy and they just go right back to eating. The bar here also has some ghostly apparitions. Yes, there is a tuxedo-clad gentleman who hangs out in the bar. Now, the bar has all the mirrors around it. And when patrons are sitting at the bar and they see themselves in the bar, they realize there's one extra image in the mirror. There was an accountant who came here one night, I think it was New Year's Day, and he was doing an inventory. And he felt this cold breath of air blowing on him, and he looked up, and here, once again, is the tuxedo-clad gentleman in the bar. So no one really knows quite who he is. He was maybe a very loyal patron, and who continues to favor the Richelieu bar. Next, we made our way to the heart of the French Quarter, New Orleans Creole Cookery, which at the time of our visit had been open for less than a year. The new owner greeted us in the restaurant's historic courtyard. My name is Anna Tusa, and this is the New Orleans Creole Cookery on 510 Toulouse Street. So how long have you been here, Anna? We've been here for the past eight months. How's it been? It's been a lot of fun. Some strange things happen, though. So this is one of the most haunted places? It certainly is. This originally was not a commercial building. It was a private residence. And there was a woman here, her name was Mary. She married Joseph. Joseph was her third husband. But Joseph apparently wasn't very content in the marriage. And so he started an affair with Angelique, who was a woman of color. And he set her up in what in New Orleans is called placage, which means he sets her up in a house as if she was really his wife, but she wasn't. And then they had a fight here one day because Angelique wanted to marry him. And he got so upset that he strangled her and buried her body right here in this courtyard. And as he was burying her body, one of the servants saw what he was doing. So he was already depressed about killing his lover. And it is said that he jumped off the balcony up there on the third floor. And he is now the grouchy ghost here at this restaurant. Well, tell me, what's been going on since you all opened up this beautiful restaurant? So in the courtyard, the gas lights constantly go off and come back on. We've had them checked by the gas company and by engineers, and there's no explanation why the lights go off and you have to relight them from the pilot. Guests in the courtyard that have dined by the fountain have actually taken selfies and pictures of themselves, and when you look at your picture to see how it came out, have seen like shadows of people in the pictures. And then just weird things happen, like when people go in the restrooms, the faucets mysteriously come on when there's no one else in there but them. Just a lot of little things. What a wonderful place this is. In New Orleans, you can start off with cocktails with a pirate over on Bourbon Street and finish with a lovely meal in the ghostly patio here at the New Orleans Creole Cookery. Absolutely fabulous and absolutely wonderful that we still have ghosts here in New Orleans. I just moved in my new house today. But I got squared away My chains started ringing and bells ringing loud 
moved in a haunted house. That was Barbara Sillery, author of The Haunting of Louisiana. After saying goodbye to Barbara, we walked through Jackson Square to visit one more haunted restaurant that day, Tableau. There, we were joined by Dickie Brennan Restaurant Group team members, Wesley Jansen and Kelly Fiorella. Though Tableau was established in 2013, it's located in the home of Le Petit Theater, which has occupied the corner of Charters and St. Peter's Street since 1922. Having spent the morning learning about scary ghosts and grouchy ghosts, I was delighted to learn from Wesley that there's at least one apparition in the quarter who manifested a neighborly spirit. Well, there is a rather helpful ghost. Her name is Caroline, and she's said to have been an actress that fell from the catwalk. And um, there's different stories surrounding how she fell from the catwalker, um, but apparently she was wearing no clothes when she fell from the catwalk because it was slightly a torrid thing going on up there on the catwalk. But regardless, she's a very, very helpful ghost. And it's said that on the third floor of Tableau, there used to be the um, storage for props for the theater. And if they couldn't find anything up there, and which was often the case because they had, you know, plays upon plays upon plays, just the props up there. So if they were looking for something, say like a cane, and they couldn't find it, they would say, Caroline, can't find the cane, I'm leaving now. They would leave, they'd come back in an hour, and it was almost always in the middle of the room. Whatever they were looking for, whatever they turned the place upside down for, was there for them. So we use that here at Tableau too. Um, we were looking for some bands. We do these gold bands on our menus and couldn't find them anywhere and we knew we had dropped them off here. So we asked Caroline to bring us some gold, you know, where are our gold bands? Find them for us. Left, they were back on the um, manager's desk. So she's helpful <coughs> to us too. I have two encounters. One was that uh, we did a reservation for a group called Destinations Diaries, and she was doing a piece on New Orleans, and uh, part of the piece had to do with paranormal activity throughout the city. So anyway, we were on the third floor in the parlor. The balcony overlooks the courtyard. Now, that's where Caroline supposedly lives, right? We're standing on one side of the room, and there's nobody standing by the door that goes out to the balcony. Like I said, it overlooks the courtyard. Takes a picture. And he's looking at the picture, and I'm not going to curse because, you know, we're on air. So use some uh, expletives. Yes. And we're like, what you, what's wrong? Shows the picture. There's a face of someone looking in the, the pane from the outside, looking in towards us. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So when I close this place and I'm on the third floor, I turn the lights out. Uh-huh. I'm not going back in there. And, and I'll do that. The other story was this. When... We're arming the system to get out of the restaurant, which we do every night. Put in our alarm code, and you got to wait for it to go through the entire building. I type in the, the code, and then we both heard something in the theater. And I looked at him. I was like, Richard, did you hear that? And he's like, yes, I did. This blank place is haunted. So as soon as he said that, the theater doors flew open, and our front door flew open and closed. Now, when, you, when y'all leave today, go out that front door and see how heavy that door is. There's no way the wind blew that door open. But, you know, you talk to the theater people. They've been here a lot longer than us, and they all say the same thing. They know we're here for a good reason, and they're just here to coexist with us. 
That was Wesley Jansen and Kelly Fiorella of the Dickie Brennan Restaurant Group. the smell of Halloween in South Louisiana? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, just 40 minutes from New Orleans, Louisiana North Shore's Tammany Taste features the bounty of the bayou and rich culinary culture from award-winning chefs, mom-and-pop restaurants, specialty bakers, and creative mixologists. To discover more, request the newly released Explore the North Shore Inspiration Guide for local stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, where New Orleans has come to play and get away for more than a century. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is the smell of Halloween in South Louisiana? That sweet floral scent that seductively wafts in the evening air is sweet olive. Having spent most of my life here, nothing excites me like that first whiff of the blossoms of the sweet olive trees, my harbinger of Halloween. Planting sweet olive trees near doorways is a landscaping tradition that dates back to Louisiana's earliest days. That's because in the time when open ditches and sewers were the norm, sweet olives were planted largely in self-defense as an attempt to mask the unpleasant odors coming in from the street. Sweet olives are an evergreen that can be grown as a bush or a tree. Our landscape is generously dotted with old sweet olives that barely reach the first story, no matter how old they are. There are some lovely old trees blooming and putting out their sweet scent just in time for trick-or-treat. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. So if you love me, don't say you like me. If you like me, don't say you love me. Cause I can't wait till Halloween to find out if it's trick-or-treat. Historian and photographer Sally Asher is an authority on New Orleans' cities of the dead. She's the author of Stories from the St. Louis Cemeteries of New Orleans, a fascinating historical account of those who call these above-ground tombs home. 
In 2015, we joined Sally at St. Louis Number 3 to learn about the arcane rituals of the dead in New Orleans while visiting a few of the cemeteries' immortalized inhabitants. St. Louis Number 3, they say out of all the cemeteries is the most, you know, city of the dead and that they used to say these were rows of houses. Well, right when you enter the entrance of St. Louis Number 3, on the left side, it's known as the Chef's Corner for three local chefs' name, but actually only one chef lives here, and that's Jean Galatois. So he is in his own special house, and he has one of the best views, just like his restaurant, the place to, you know, see and be seen, is that's Jean Galatois, too. So, of course, the reason that we have these cities of the dead is because our water table is so high. So maybe you could take us back to the earliest days and explain how they discovered this and what it might have been like before they started building the cities of the dead. Basically, it was kind of done by class system at that time. If you could afford to be buried above ground, the earliest burials, which were done in the French Quarter, were below ground. And it was very common during a heavy rain or storm for former loved ones to pop up and sometimes make their appearance on the French Quarter streets. And so that's when they started roughly at that when they demolished the St. Peter Street Cemetery and we went to St. Louis Number 1, they were predominantly above ground. Now out in Potter's Fields, out, which was located in this area, in the Mid-City area, it was still below ground. And they have recorded uh, diaries and newspaper accounts of people would have to stand on the coffins. Men would go and stand and wait for them to have the mud fill up and they would keep popping up and keep popping up and the widowed mother or wife would throw themselves down and they could not be buried, which is another one of the reasons why the Benevolent Society tomb started so people could be buried above ground and would not be reappearing days or years down, down the road. As we wound our way through the cemetery's above ground vaults, Sally happened upon the memorial of an infamous 19th century shipwreck that carried some unique New Orleanians in tow. What was unusual about the one trip, it was the one trip that they wrote about because when they left New York Harbor, it was filled with all these prostitutes because probably about a half a dozen madams, it was common for them to go to New York and to the East to pick up prostitutes to fill the brothels for the winter season. So a lot of the really fine prostitutes would winter here in New Orleans. <laughs> so they were coming back from their trip with, it ranges between 60 to 90 prostitutes. And then we had the French Opera Company, and then we had a French circus on this um, boat. So it was already notorious by the time it left the harbor, and then it sunk in a hurricane. It sunk in a hurricane October 1866. Yeah, it's a lot different, you know, you think about the Titanic, how you go down, you're in the lifeboats, and this was like being in this violent washing machine where a lot of people died from being decapitated, being hit in the head, because there's just debris filing everywhere. And so while in some cases it saved your life, people were holding on to, you know, parts of the ship to live, in other cases that's what's killed them from being struck by the falling debris. And there was five lifeboats uh, had survived only uh, they think just one woman there was no women and children first because apparently a lot of the workers were scabs and they refused to hire union men so it was a lot of the men the crew had claimed the boats for themselves and were threatening 
passengers, like they would strike them or hit them if they tried to get into the boat. And then all the different boats went in different areas and they were out and some were out in the open sea for, you know, five days with no provisions. Oh my gosh. And the, the saddest one was there was one that carried one, like third mate who had passengers. He was the only one that had all passengers and they all died. Oh. Some went crazy and threw themselves over the boat. And there was two young girls left, like 16, 19. They were both prostitutes. And they just got to shore. Like they'd gotten to shore, they were making it, and the waves came over, and the third mate fell out, and his feet touched the ground. And he's like, we're safe, we're safe. And the women were so exhausted and worn out that they got thrown out to sea. And they died just, just yards away from the shore. And they found one and buried her, and the other one, all they found left was her perfectly formed foot. <gasps> the sharks ate her. They said that God sunk the ship because it was loaded down with inequity. What an incredible project. I mean, the cities of the dead in New Orleans are teeming, teeming with stories and people. And I think New Orleans, you know, you're, it's so unusual, and people are so enraptured by you know the beauty of some of these cemeteries even the decay is just amazing it's unique that they tend to forget that they're people who are buried in here and these people had a really strong imprint on new orleans and i feel like if you can know the people and know their stories it will give you even a greater respect for the cemeteries and it means a lot more to be walking up and down these aisles and knowing who these people were and what they did and what they achieved than simply looking at a beautiful tombstone it, or sometimes passing a very modest one and not realizing the significance in it. So as we walk along, tell us what it would have looked like here on the big day. Tell us about All Saints and All Souls Day, New Orleans style. Well, All Saints Day, which happens on November 1st, the day after Halloween, was always looked upon as a chance to pay your respects to the dead. People would come in and they would wash the tombs, they would lay flowers, they would pull weeds. And it wasn't just a day kind of of cleaning, of preparation, it was also a celebration. And there was kind of two divided parties where people got a chance to dress up and wear their finery and some people was very much a fashion show. They got to wear the latest fashions where other people would be dressed very shabbily and in deep mourning, but outside they would sell um, sweet potato pies, there would be candy, there would be flowers. The flower shops would start advertising just a few weeks in, in advance. You can go through some of these old advertisements for flower specials for All Saints Days. People, vendors would be lined up outside the cemeteries uh, selling balloons and toys for the children to keep them amused. And most of the richer families would have some of their slaves in antebellum times. They would stand by the tombs and, and guard the tombs and watch over them for that day while the ladies might set down their furs or their parasols and people would be in uh, bars, were usually open at special hours because most of the men could not handle either the women parading up and down or the crying women. And so it was tradition then for the men to hit the bars afterwards and they would have it was one of their best days so for flower vendors for food vendors for bars they said it was a cross between Christmas and Mardi Gras. Sally thank you so much for taking us on this hauntingly exciting tour of the cemeteries. Thank you very much. Sounds and stories from the St. Louis cemeteries 
with historian and photographer Sally Asher, speaking with us in 2015. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and videos, too. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, and the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. And from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. D'Agostino's all-natural, preservative-free pasta is available in traditional forms, as well as their signature alligator, crawfish, and fleur-de-lis-shaped pastas. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Palace Cafe, located in the historic Whirline Music Building on Canal Street, now open for indoor and outdoor dining Tuesday through Sunday with brunch served weekends. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>